Welcome to the Voices of the Land, where we tell a rolling story of land conservation from all angles and perspectives. Here, we explore why the Westerly Land Trust mission to conserve open space, revitalize culturally significant properties, and provide environmental programs is beneficial to the community and to the environment. Join us on this tremendous journey of wonderment and empathy towards the natural wonders of our world. everybody. Welcome to episode 15 of Voices of the Land. I'm your host, Mark. And for this month's episode, Erica and I took the show on the road down to Watch Hill to talk to Dan and Jocelyn of the Watch Hill Conservancy. They were kind enough to uh, invite us down to the Lamphere Livery, which is their headquarters, and a really beautiful, uh, historically preserved, climate change resilient building located right in downtown Watch Hill. It really represents, to me, everything that the Watch Hill Conservancy is doing, which I hope you'll learn more about in this episode, and was a, was a great space to, to host this conversation. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Dan and Jocelyn of the Watch Hill Conservancy. Okay, here, we're taking this show on the road. We're really excited to, to be in town and uh, have Dan and Jocelyn here with us. So um, if you guys want to just introduce yourself. My name is Jocelyn Leahy. I'm the executive director of the Watch Hill Conservancy. Yeah, I'm Dan Cole. I am the Napa Tree Point Conservation Area Manager um, for the Watch Hill Conservancy. Nice, this is great. And and I don't know, do you, do you guys, this, we're in such a cool space right now. Um, Dan and Jocelyn are nice enough to host us. So um, do you want to tell us a little bit about this place and, and where we are right now? Sure. The Landfear Livery um, is a historic building in the Watch Hill Fire District. About five years ago, it went through a rehabilitation process to bring it back to sort of its historic state. And so now it's a multi-use building with commercial spaces, residential spaces, and the Conservancy has our office on the second floor. So this went through historic preservation standards and was renovated and rehabilitated to honestly beautiful conditions as you can see here mm -hmm. and we use the room that we're in the chaplain b barnes reading room for a community space we have the conservancy's events here but we also have other you know the coastal institute our science advisors meetings other nonprofits locally use it um, and people even rent it out for their own private events as well so it's a really multi-use facility and we're cannot be happier to be here um, in the heart of our downtown watch hill right. <laughs> exactly. well, you can add podcasting to the oh yeah that's yeah. right we can add podcasting now yeah. Yeah. and you have a good view yes yeah. yeah it's very nice yeah right here right in, right in the bay so it's mm -hmm. great we see Nap napa tree right from the back door yeah, yeah. <laughs> make sure everything's going on over there and it's all all right yeah <laughs> yeah your commute isn't so bad huh <laughs> no <laughs> yeah so so jocelyn how, how did you get here to to watch out conservancy so I have an environmental science background. I grew up in Maine, and after college, I worked for a conservation district, actually, and kind of got my uh, feet wet there with um, managing a small organization and staff and budgets and all of that sort of stuff. was there for a handful of years and kind of reached this point in my life where I decided that I really wanted to try something other than Maine. I love it dearly, and I always will. But I felt like I wanted to explore and still be close to family. And in my search process, um, once I found this position here, I felt like it was really combining all of the skill sets that I had had previously and through my college career. It was all really hard science focused. Mm -hmm. And then with my management position at the district, um, I kind of got that aspect in between Napa Tree and our historic preservation work and the role of executive director that the Conservancy was looking for, I just really felt like it was a blend of all of those things. And fortunately for me, they thought so too, I guess. So I've been here, it's actually three years next month. Um, nice. And I'm happy to be here. And we are, are 
growing our team rapidly. There's a lot of changes in the last three years, but they've all been really positive. And um, Dan has joined us most recently yeah. as manager. Yeah, I've only been here six months now. So, and I, I came to to Rhode Island by way of Florida, but uh, I'm originally from New York, um, mid-state New York. You can't quite call it upstate New York. Mm. Um, and yeah, I studied uh, in Long Island University and um, was really in love with, with the beach and, and uh, the landscape of the island down there. Um, and I thought I was going to be a teacher. Came out of uh, college going the teacher route and discovered I, I uh, couldn't be in the classroom for too long. Um, I then moved into environmental education. Um, I ran camps for um, what's now the Long Island Aquarium for a little bit. Um, and then um, my now wife got an amazing job down in Florida. So I headed down to Florida the park ranger for a while, taught environmental nice. ed at a small um, preserve. And On then, the coast, or was that in No, right place, smack or? dab in the middle of Orlando. Oh, so, nice. yeah, yeah, so very hour, about as far as you can get from the ocean, you know, <laughs> an hour each way. Yeah. Um, and then I was lucky enough to, to start out just doing, like, facilities, maintenance, and stewardship work uh, with the Nature Conservancy at a preserve they have down there, and then grew into a... Uh, manager role there so i was managing twelve thousand acres with a, just an incredible team and i think like most people during during covid um there was a lot of reflection that happened and we wanted to get closer to family so we kind of came up with with a plan let's start looking back in the northeast and uh the plan that was uh, maybe three to five years ended up being a year um so and just like Jocelyn said, I saw the, the posting for the Napa Tree uh, Point Conservation Area Manager, and it just felt like a lot of the skill sets I, I built throughout my career, from education to, to land management to, to running a team, um, just matched perfectly. So um, I applied and you know, up here just at the end of the, the summer season, so I got to see a little bit of it in its peak and and then i've been really enjoying the the fall and uh gearing up for this coming summer so nice and had you ever been to watch hill before never, never. no never been to watch hill it's amazing i only grew up two hours from yeah. here you yeah, know yeah. and uh i was reflecting on that with a friend the other day like yeah. how do we just never went over that way we always <laughs> went down like city and and uh south you yep. know we just never went new england way so yeah so yeah but it's, it's beautiful so i'm really glad to be be part of uh, the Watch Hill Conservancy and 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 here in this area. So I, I always, you know, obviously the you know Rhode Island is called the Ocean State, yeah. but growing up in Texas, yeah. so I didn't really give <laughs> Rhode Island a whole lot of thought. But I, I, I mean, still, what I did, I just never pictured the beaches as being such a, a, a characteristic, a feature of Rhode Island. But um, they're just beautiful here. Mm -hmm. I feel very fortunate. Even the, in the winter, like you said, even in the winter, the fall and winter, that's some of the best times I feel. Like, we, you know, our family loves to go um, to the beach in the fall and the winter when it's quiet and peaceful and mm -hmm. dogs can run and everything. So yeah. it's, a, it's nice to have a four-season place to live. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And even in Maine, I mean, people go to the beach as a couple of really popular ones, but... We, the coastline's a lot more rugged up right. there. It's a lot right. more rocky. And so I remember when I went to Musquamacut State Beach, the first time I moved down here, I was kind of like, whoa, this is, this is like beach beach. Beach, yeah. Beach, exactly. And with the ponds, too. I mean, yeah. you have like, you have all the kind of maritime ecosystems, estuarine ecosystems that you could ask for right here. Yeah. Too. And, and, the, and, you know, you have the actual hill. We have the rocks here. We have, like, you know, more on Western Land Trust properties. We have some of the moraine-like type features, kettle pond features. I mean, it's, it's sweet. Mm -hmm. And for the same reason that you said, and you said to be in New England is for family. And I feel like, yeah. you know, I, and you have chose to raise your family yeah. here. It, it's, a great, it's a great place to, to do that. And... Um, I was going to say how, how I got here was like, I, I wanted to be closer to family, but Rhode Island really has it all and going, experimenting, you know, at different scales of, of land management or, or hard science and, or education. I feel like the, the scale of conservation work that both the Western Land Trust and Watch Hill are at is like 
you can be involved in a little bit of everything and it's that's what is appealing to me you know mm-hmm. you're not just uh you're not just you know the land stewardship person even though that's what you might be you get to be involved in the organization as a whole and the community as a whole mm-hmm. so yeah. that's i think like we're all here at this scale now and i think i heard that in each one of our stories and mm-hmm. i think yeah. it's cool yeah absolutely yeah. that's a great way to put it because we do all have our own specific roles that we're delegated but um I'm sure your organization's the same, that this is a team effort. This is, you know, we all are in communication all the time, Mm -hmm. no matter what we're dealing with. Um, It takes that, like, tight-knit group to be able to get that that work done. Mm -hmm. I I think that must be a common feature of nonprofits in general, just Mm -hmm. because of the lack of... Uh, you know, funding for staff that everybody has to wear multiple hats. I mean, obviously there are larger nonprofits, but I think that is one of the features I've loved most about being in a smaller, um, a smaller organization is that you do have to like you never know what your day is going to be like because you come in and, and who knows if you're going to be doing a podcast that day. <laughs> I, did, I did know about this. I did know yeah. I was going to be doing this, but I mean there there are you know your days your day is always going to look a little bit different from one to the next because you have so many different varying responsibilities and like that yeah Yeah. i think that variety like keeps you so much more engaged though sometimes that you don't know what's going to happen but you know you could be out treating invasive species in the morning and then you know teaching uh plant identification to a group of middle schoolers in the afternoon and, and you know you just get this this breadth of responsibility and different types of interactions that just it keeps you engaged and keeps you learning, yep. I, mm-hmm. I found, because um, yep. you're always, you know, pushing your your knowledge a little bit because you're dealing with things that pop up or yeah. mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to do something new and, and get it yep. done with maybe not all the expertise in yeah. that field. So. Or people coming to you from the community, presenting ideas and a perspective that you hadn't thought about and then thinking about how you can incorporate that into either your work or the organization's work. It's like, it's definitely all hands on deck. Yeah. 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 And it is nice to be engaged in the community that you, you, that they feel comfortable coming to you, but also that you are, uh, open-minded enough to listen to somebody who may not necessarily have the expertise, but that has, uh, a real world experience that is obviously going to benefit Mm -hmm. the community and the organization. Right. It's great too. Yeah. We all have, I think here in Westerly, that, that kind of we all have skin in the game, right? And the Watch Hill Conservancy, the Westerly Land Trust, the Nature Conservancy, other more local conservation groups in town, like it's kind of strange. Like, well, you know, we're all doing the same thing, but why are there so many groups? I think that, you know, we each kind of have our specializations, right? And um, I, I, I think that's cool to then collaborate with one another and, and, and you know, really help the health of the land and the community in our in our one organization but not everybody trying to do it all right there's so much going on uh, i know that at the westerly land trust if we were trying to do some of the the coastal resiliency projects and, and research that you guys are doing i mean i don't think we would have the capacity to do it i mean to the extent at which you're you're doing it so like uh, what's going on out there i know napa tree is sort of the the yeah the marquee um you know, spot for you guys. but mm-hmm. With the coastal resiliency work, we started, it was actually four years ago now that we started. So we're very fortunate to have a team of volunteer science advisors from um, different local organizations or the local universities, URI, Eastern Connecticut State. And they give us their time and knowledge um, towards our mission efforts. And one of those is our resilience see work that we're called planning for a resilient future so it started about four years ago when we got a group of um, representatives from different organizations at the table to say hey what's coming down the line what is sea level rise how will it affect our community what can be done is there anything that can be done and so what we're learning from that process and gathering this group we've brought in other town planners from um uh, Groton or in Rhode Island, we've had actually some of our Napa tree naturalists do some research and do sort of a compilation of previous work that's been done in our community, Warren, um, 
different areas that are ex already being exposed to these nuisance tides and then looking at it from you know the perspective of what are our assets what do we need to preserve um, access to like Napa Tree Point and that's, so most of the resiliency is really around like the issue of sea level rise right that's like exactly that's, that's, right that's the you know and, and what are the and so the the ecological condition the geological condition of Napa Tree is like a, a big part of that right right and it, inf it informs what we know about how sea level rise will affect us because we mm -hmm. have all of this data that we can reflect on so mm -hmm. there's actually a really cool tool i'm not sure if you've used it yet but it's storm tools and it's put out by the state and you can filter through all these different scenarios three feet five feet a hundred year storm and it is incredibly and impressively accurate based on tide gauge data that we've even seen and used ourselves mm. and so between that and some of the dune transects that our science advisors are working on and other gps mapping that's happened that's how we can see what's coming mm -hmm. you know 30 to 50 years out yeah so we have science advisors and um out there monitoring the dune transects so pretty much they're taking sections of napa tree and they're walking with real-time GPS data, and they've been doing this since 2013 to figure out how the, the area is changing, and especially pre and post-storm. Um, and we also work with the University of Rhode Island Coastal Institute. Uh, we're one of their climate, de climate demonstration sites, and they have three different sites, and we're kind of the natural demonstration site to see how these natural areas respond after these large storm events. Um, and that that knowledge helps inform, you know, other areas as well. So we know after Superstorm Sandy came through, for the the dune system out on Napa Tree to recover it took about five years. And that was a, a very it, I mean it was a very large storm, but in the scheme of how it hit Napa Tree, it was a very moderate storm. Um, so that knowledge there can then be transferred to other coastal communities. Mm -hmm. So, and what is it about Napa Tree specifically that um, that uh, allows it to be, or that that makes people want to focus on it as one of the top three um, areas to study? Because it is on on developed, right? Mm -hmm. So, and it has been changing, uh, you know, since since really it was named Napa Tree. I mean, it was named Nap neck and trees because there used yeah. to be a lot of trees on it and you know, 1815 <laughs> that was wiped out from the records um and then that cycle of, of that storm driven ecosystem has naturally happened so the big one that everyone remembers is the storm of a 38 hurricane that pretty much reset the trajectory of the point it had 39 houses on there at the time it, those houses were wiped clean and, and never rebuilt so it wiped that away and then it came back as this natural ecosystem and now looking at it we've, we've watched the migration mm -hmm. of the point actually move about 200 feet north towards um little narragansett into little narragansett bay and that 38 hurricane also cleaved off and separated sandy point from napa tree and if you look at the aerial photography now that's almost over in connecticut so looking at those long-term changes and then also looking at some of these more rigorous short-term studies really help us project, you know, how, how some of these natural ecosystems work um, and understand, mm -hmm. um, understand them a little bit more. So. And because Napa Tree has a conservation easement held over it um, by the Wacho Fire District, they're the primary owners and the conservancy holds the easement this allows it to main, be maintained in its natural state. So mm -hmm. it has an incredible wealth of rare ecosystems and rare uh, species out there, especially, um, you know, some of our shorebirds, uh, migrating shorebirds. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is probably why people look at it as this example of, you know, why is it a demonstration site? I do know with the Coastal Institute, they were looking at a couple of different um, Kind of criteria for that so they wanted a natural site an urban site and i'm not sure what the third was but in in their assessment napa tree was 
that natural mm -hmm. site. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the change happens so fast there too, because of the dune system, like that it's easy to really get in, gets interesting stuff to look at, mm -hmm. right? On, right? On the shorter term. That we're dealing with a lot of a lot of these issues, right? Absolutely. I mean, some of like, yeah. with the thirty-eight hurricane, some of the imagery from that, like Dan said, there were homes out there, mm -hmm. and the next day, the aerial photographs show a completely sand-covered napa tree, and it's it's uh, quite terrifying, but also amazing what those systems can bring mm -hmm. up to. Have you seen, Our does coast. like, have you seen things get re-exposed or anything like that? Like old, you know, pilings or parts of homes? Like we were talking earlier about the dune rolling. Like I wonder mm -hmm. if things maybe will, will re-emerge or, <laughs> or if they've been lost to sea. I or, think they were or, lost or, to sea. Uh, um, okay. There is an area of little, of the bay called the kitchen. kitchen. Yeah. And I think that that's where a lot of debris landed. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't personally heard of anything being no. exposed from... Um, the 38 hurricane. However, there are a couple of tankers that sunk off of the coast out here over the by the reef. The barges, the barges yes, yeah. that's what I mean. Yeah. And so there's been coins that have come up, coal. Um, some people, there is evidence of uh, pottery and maybe even farming out there at one point, I mean, wow. way back. Wow. Um, and so those sorts of artifacts have come up at, nice. near the farthest tip of Napa Tree. Yeah. Um, but I haven't heard anything about the houses themselves. No, not themselves. I think the kitchen, they used to find like utensils and stuff, mm. but you know, I'm not super knowledgeable on that. But the coal is interesting because I had a gentleman just the other day. There's just a big, massive wash up of coal from one of our storms. Where did this come from? And yeah. got to talk about the barges that, mm -hmm. that used yeah. to deliver the coal and come out and something mm. would yep. sink or the coal fall over and we're still seeing effects of that. I think there was one carrying motorcycles out there too. Yeah. So there's really? a Harley out there somewhere. Somewhere, yeah, I think somewhere. so. <laughs> Pulling up her store. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> East Coast Customs. Yeah. Um, yeah so, I, someone told me about, sorry, yeah. someone told me about, um, there was, do you guys know that there was like a railroad that went out on there too or something or, or a trolley line or something? I don't know, maybe. I don't I'm weird. I'm just kind of learning more about the history of the area and it's really amazing. You know, we can talk about how the environment has changed at Napa Tree, but like the land use here has changed so much as well. You know, thinking about Fort Ninegrette and, you know, post-World you know, World War era, like what was happening here and, and looking at it now as, as a sort of a, a, a de vacation destination, which it's always been, but, and, and um, you know, on our properties, we have so many old farm foundations or, or Cemetery. quarries, mm -hmm. cemeteries, all these different sites, and that have really been uh taken over by uh the forests and in only such a short period of time too we talk about the recovery after the hurricanes um in the 30s and 50s there uh in terms of how the forests grew back because okay. the forests were really decimated by the, those were events they? as well yeah so um you know we see a lot of like really uh similar age forest stands in places and so a lot of the resiliency work that we do is kind of to, to uh promote the health of those forests long term uh, and there's a lot of you know the threats are linked to climate change as well um, you know and more loosely uh, like thinking about the gypsy moth right we're seeing more frequent and intense outbreaks you know they are a native species but uh, really um, kind of not being checked uh, in maybe in ways they used to be so we're thinking about how we manage our forests in mm -hmm. that way too. So. And do you think that's because the winter temperatures aren't um, killing off larval stages of them or eggs, or well, how does that work with the gypsy I'm not moths? sure. I'm not sure too much. I'm just starting to learn more yep. about that. Um, but we can think about uh, early detection, right? And keeping an eye on our lands and knowing if there is an outbreak, mm -hmm. uh, where it is, and how we will we deal with it. Unfortunately, there's not a lot you can do. Um, but you have to have a recovery plan or, or make sure that your forests are in the best health because uh, a stand in you know, good soil can survive a defoliation, right? Mm -hmm. But a subsequent defoliation in poor soil, you know, they, they, might, not, they might not make it, right? So right. Um, definitely making sure. And like, same thing, you know, Napa tree is not going to, you're, you're going to see massive changes, but you want it to be able to bounce back. And that's mm -hmm. what really, I think, resiliency is about absolutely yeah. Uh -huh. yeah i think you hit an interesting point of looking at 
you know, you talked about our, our, our niches before of looking at the, the properties that we're stewarding right now and mm-hmm. um, that you understand them. So you're understanding the gypsy moss and how, how this, these stands react mm-hmm. in different soil types. So getting to that nuances, I think as being a small land trust that we each, we each are able to dive into you know our work at that level mm-hmm. um and so you talk at the about, site level at that site level yeah. and really pass that knowledge along through history i mean as stewards you're just holding that yeah. that knowledge for the next generation essentially <laughs> and so i think as smaller land trust we we talk about really intimately knowing our properties and how do we export that out um to help others understand their properties so mm-hmm. open communication between land trusts between community mm-hmm. members learning from the history of our community members and and the public around here that that have seen these these mm-hmm. things play out firsthand and right. and they walk in and they're volunteers for us and mm-hmm. things like that you really get to to understand and, and really feel connected mm-hmm. to right. that area so right definitely i think it's i think it's interesting to think of the woods as like a history book, mm-hmm. right? And you can see the bookmarks where the hurricane happened and where the, yeah. you know, the next natural occurrence took place. And you can a see, flood. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know, fire, if that mm-hmm. happened, you can kind of, you can see the history through it, but obviously can making connections with the community who was here, or, I mean, there aren't a terribly like, too many people who were here during the hurricane, but there's still a few, mm-hmm. obviously. And, um, and I think, you know, just making the, all those connections and, and cementing that history for our, our community and our society is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's good to see, like, I, I, I personally think of, especially now that I, you guys have told us about Napa tree rolling over, which this, this happened before we hit record, but, um, but I, that just fascinates me. And I'm going to be thinking about that all the time. Mm-hmm. And maybe you guys can, can go over that again. But it just is, um, it seems to me like it is such a more fluid environment that you guys are dealing with than what Mark is experiencing going out and looking at the woods and really getting to know the woods. And like we, he took me for a hike the other day and he was like, I know this tree, you know, like he has all of his landmarks and everything, yeah. but you guys are dealing with something that is, may not be here tomorrow just mm-hmm. because of the, the tide may come in too much. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like, I mean, obviously things could happen to trees yeah. just as easily, but <laughs> So you're you're right. It's something that I've heard said many times is Napa tree is a storm driven Mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that as weather comes in, it changes it immediately and directly. And like you said, that could happen to trees as well too, but um, being so exposed and out in between little Narragansett Bay, um, the Bay side and the ocean side of Napa tree, there's a a uh, lot of fetch that comes from yeah. Fisher's Island, is it? No, uh, kind of over towards the Connecticut area. I mean, you have that open water that mm-hmm. comes in. We get a predominantly west wind mm-hmm. out there, so you're getting fetch from both sides okay. on, mm-hmm. on the, the barrier island. Right, the bay side and, yeah. and Long Island Sound. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so what yeah. happens is the movement of the sand, kind of you can imagine it being brought up to the top of the hill, and when it gets too much, it falls back over on the other side. And so when we say the dunes roll over, it's kind of that image of it falling over itself and it um, re-establish itself in different ways after different storms. Um, And um, Dan had mentioned with Sandy, when we're talking about recovery, some of that is deposition Mm -hmm. from tides and um, the water coming in, but some of it is also removal from that same tidal event. so yep. it's, it's really kind of interesting how it all works. Yeah, and just, just looking at, um, from our science advisors, studying it and, and looking at the history of it, we know it moved about a full width of the island north. So In, in how many years? Uh, that's probably from like the, after 39 to yeah. 2014, I think that study was done. Mm-hmm. So, so pretty much 200 foot feet, you know, it has moved north, mm-hmm. yeah. northward from mm-hmm. just that natural process of rolling over. Right. It just really speaks yeah. to the power of the ocean and the storms. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? And then especially now that your focus is on sea level rise, it just makes it even more chilling right. <laughs> to think about. And a challenge... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say a challenge, challenging part of this whole resiliency work for the Conservancy isn't just the Napa tree aspect, which is obviously quite vulnerable and, you know, we've... I already said it's a storm-driven system and all of that, but the 
other area that the Conservancy focuses on is historic preservation. Yep. So the Watch Hill Fire District is on the National Register of Historic Places, and there's over 100 contributing buildings in that. So this resiliency issue and um, sea level rise and nuisance tide flooding and the effects that it'll have um, locally, not even just in this district, I mean, it's the whole state of Rhode Island, right? Um, and everywhere else. Um, that's something we have to consider too in balance with the ecological conservation mm. to this historic preservation aspect too. Right. Um, which definitely brings a different challenge to yeah. the plate. Um, that immediately makes me think about what we were talking about earlier, like as stewards of the land, we synthesize all this information, right? Uh, we gather data from the environment, from people, from historical landmarks that we have. So by maybe preserving, it, it, natural landscapes aren't the only things under threat by sea level rise mm -hmm. and, and climate change. It, it is the preservation of these historical sites. Mm -hmm. And by saving these historical sites, we like allow access to future generations to like synthesize the information and, and learn from those sites. Right. Yeah. I think I often get in other positions I've been, you know, science and, and, uh, uh, natural environment driven and focused and haven't really learned to appreciate the human aspect of our influence on the land. And I think seeing the work that you guys do and learning uh, some of the work that we've done, whether it's just uh, maintaining and, and rebuilding stone walls, mm -hmm. discovering the story behind the walls, uh, you know, uh, maintaining uh, and discovering the history of old farm foundations, the graveyards, things like that. Like mm -hmm. I've, I found a lot of joy in that that I didn't really well, think about your history, right, is out, out on land in Colorado that's much mm -hmm. more open and probably less inhabited, right, right? Right, And I feel like we are here in the part of the country where, you know, a lot of societies came from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and uh, we I think we're going to see, like, our you know, our, our country's um, history a lot more, obviously, mm -hmm. in this section of the world. Certainly, yeah. I'm not, I mean, obviously, like, I don't know. I, I don't know how to. There's say lots it, of history that's happened everywhere. It's there, throughout there's older history. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. There's a lot, a lot of like condensed. I guess mm -hmm. is what I'm trying yeah. to say. There's a lot of condensed civilization in this area. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and you know that hadn't made it out to the west where mm -hmm. you were spending a lot of time. And mm -hmm. the open spaces are much more vast where you. Yeah, your heads up in the clouds, not yeah. down, not down under right. the trees. Right. Yeah. And so now you really can focus on how on the human impact. Right. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, but yeah, that's absolutely. That's Except we'll leave, we'll zoom out of New England for I a know. second because I do <laughs> want to just tell you guys about this really cool thing that I found. I had never, and maybe this was kind of what charted me on this course to feeling this way. But I, when I was out in Colorado this summer, we were traveling to a plot in you know the sagebrush step, and we we're it was it was a tough it was hard to get to remote and we're um setting up our transects and uh, i was maybe like starting to do our like species richness walk and i'm looking around and there was this uh stone this like a piece of sandstone that kind of stood out to me and it had square corners kind of and i was like oh that's interesting and i so i bet and it had um squiggles on it too but it kind of looked like um like if a like when under the bark of a fallen tree, like a, a bug had made it or something. So I flip it, flip it over, and it has writing on it. It's inscribed, and I'll show you guys a picture of this later. <laughs> That's but it awesome. was, it was, I felt when I turned that thing over, it was like, it was, it was. I felt like like Indiana Jones or something. Like I yeah. understood the thrill of being an archaeologist, or and it was, it was so so fascinating. And we're like, this must be cool. So we took pictures of it. We left it in place. And we went to our um, archaeologist at our field office, and I shared the pictures with him. And he's an absolutely over-the-top, incredible guy. Right. such a character, as many archaeologists are. And um, he sort of downplayed it at first, you know. And not, none of the writing on it appeared to be English, so I'm, I'm wondering, is, you know, um, is this European or is this, you know, is this prehistoric something? Yeah. What's going on here? Um, 
yeah, again, I gave it to him. He downplayed it. He goes, oh, yeah, it's, I don't know. You know, it's probably nothing too special or something like that. But then I heard him telling all of his colleagues, right? <laughs> he was telling everybody about it. He, the next day, he went out in the field, surveyed the site, looked for more things. Uh, he ended up realizing that it was a... Uh, a Native American, uh, there were there was a prehistoric and a historic site. Uh, I don't know what, maybe that's the wrong terminology, but uh, there was a, a Native a prayer site there, but there was also uh, potentially uh, like um, a mining camp there as well. Huh. And he, so he passed around this tablet to all his colleagues and nobody really knew what was going on on there. And, and, and. I have to check back in. It's still somewhat of a mystery. Some theories were thrown out there. But discovering that and, and thinking about, you know, I was in this remote landscape, not thinking about human history, not thinking about who had been there, what has happened there. You think, I was just, I was only starting to learn like that there was actually cool things naturally going on in, the, in that ecosystem. But to learn that people have been doing stuff there mm-hmm. for a long, long time and to capture a bit of that. So... Now we're here looking at stone walls in a different way. And yeah. I, yeah. It was a great experience. And That's really yeah, cool. It was, cool. It was, it was, it was yeah. so thrilling. There was, it, was like, oh, it was like, I don't, what was that? Which Indiana Jones was there? Like, you know, when they open a door, or maybe like in the Goonies, you know, they open the door, or they play in the piano, and they open the door, and it's like there's like a, a, a ghostly wind, yeah. you know? I felt like a ghostly wind. Yeah. And it was... It, was, uh, it just wanted for, to transport you back yeah. in time. It did, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, I had so my I had my my brimmed hat on and everything. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, so there there there's a lot going on out there in terms of natural history, human mm. history. Yeah. I mean, it's it's cool to appreciate it all. And yeah. there's there's every and it needs each aspect needs conservation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Well, and something we were thinking about after having our first conversation with you about planning this. Um, episode was that really the Westerly Land Trust is doing historic preservation too yeah. with agriculture, with the stone walls, with mm-hmm. the old foundations. Um, that is a significant part of our history mm-hmm. that you're working to protect. And, and, and it's the narrative a, too of what, what, how has this land changed hands and absolutely. who found, you know, who, uh, who was here, you know, before European colonization yeah. and also, you know, as as Europeans came in, what families were the first, and how did how did they, um, what what land did they hold, and and what businesses do they bring here? I mean, it's it's so dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and the you know farming is so different than it used to be that you're you know working to save a, that in whatever level. I just think it's really noble and really cool to mm-hmm. be involved with. Um, yeah. and, and that's something that the conservancy is not involved with specifically is agriculture. Right. So it's kind of cool how we have these areas where we meet, where mm-hmm. it's like historic preservation, yeah. um, but we each specialize in our own yeah. way on how to do that and mm-hmm. can give something to our broader community, um, mm-hmm. South County, Westerly, whatever you want to call it, um, in a different way. I think Mark and I referenced the image of the Venn diagram quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I think there are definitely ways in which we overlap, and and people when people say, well, why are there so many conservation organizations? Why isn't there just one? Mm-hmm. But I do feel like it allows us to to really um, to really focus on certain things. But also, at the end of the day, we all do we do share a lot of the same missions, mm-hmm. which is important. But I think that the things that as long as we're all coming together to yeah. share those missions mm-hmm. and to and collaborate. And work together when it is important, but then going back and, and t- you know, learning what our specific ni- niche is, mm-hmm. to use your favorite word of the day. Yes, um, yeah. Whether squirrels or... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I definitely see value in having multiple organizations that can really hone their focus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think... I would imagine that everyone at this table would be comfortable with saying that there's plenty of work to be done. Yes. Oh so <laughs> yeah. even if even if there are areas of overlap, it's that's not a yeah. bad thing. We mm-hmm. all need each other to do this work and to, you know, conserve whether it be our human history or our ecological history. You mm-hmm. know. Well, I think yeah. also, you know, if you think about we're t- we're a small town in the smallest state, right? But look at the geographic and 
um, you know, the differences in, in the landscape. Like you guys are dealing with a beach and, you know, oceanfront tidal section. And, you know, we'll deal with the river occasionally, but, um, but it's westerly encompasses more, a more, you know, a more diverse landscape than a lot of cities do a mm-hmm. lot of bigger cities anyway. Right. Um, so I think it is important to, to really, to hone that, hone your, your focus. Yeah. Your focus, but then also share those skills out yeah. with each other as well, yep. you know, cause we're learning from each other. Um, yeah. We always, always talked about how conservation doesn't really know boundaries exactly. essentially. And, um, I came from the fire world or you're laying down fire on your landscape a lot and, and, it yeah. took everyone in the conservation community as a whole to yeah. get that done at the scale that it needs to be done, to yeah. get conservation done at the scale it needs to be done to protect it for future generations yeah. and to be resilient, to mm-hmm. have places where corridors and wildlife can move as mm-hmm. our environments change. It, it takes a lot of organizations working together to do that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, and it, and that's like that organization needs to take, okay, say, I don't know what the land was like in the South or in the West. It's like, you know, the federal government and state government holds yeah. huge swaths of land, right? But, and so you think, oh, it's one stakeholder, you know, making decisions over a wide area. Maybe that's more efficient, right? But really not. It takes, there's a lot of organizational collaboration that goes on within. Or if it's like we have in New England where the land is much more, it's a lot more privately held, smaller bits of land. Um, the organizations themselves have to collaborate, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, it's however you cut it. Um, well, and one, one thing we talked about when you came to visit us at our office is that, you know, the coast it, kind of like what you're saying, there's no boundaries. And yet there's a very uh, definitive boundary between Rhode Island and Connecticut, you know, like from, from a state line point so, of view, yeah. you know, anyway, from like a, a government point of view, mm-hmm. but not in the natural right. border no. other right. than the river. Yeah. <clears throat> but, uh, but even like the same things that are going to affect, um, uh, Stonington and, and Groton and New London, every town, every coastal town in Connecticut that's within the, the Long Island sound are going to connect or affect um, Rhode Island specifically, um, Westerly's part of the ocean, right? Or the mm-hmm. sound. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I bet you guys have to deal a lot with another state government, right? Do you ever have to deal with that? Do you like, we worked with, we reached out, um, during the planning stages of our planning for a resilient future initiative. We were having mm-hmm. these workshops and things like that and brought in a local representative, um, at the planning level, I should say they were a planner and brought them over here and to help us understand what they've been doing because in that specific community, it was Groton. They had really made some great headway there from a management level. We're not closely um, involved with the state, but we have, um, you know, partners like us fish and wildlife, they come out every summer and they do monitoring out there. Um, Barn islands right across. Exactly. Across the way. And and I guess, yeah, I guess it wouldn't even be dealing, sorry, sorry, dealing directly with the state government, but dealing with other organizations that are in a different state who then have to answer to their state government. Right. So you may have different rules and regulations, Mm -hmm that you're you're each having to deal with but that you're all along the same front trying to deal with the same issue deal with the same issues and it would be nice to have a united front yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. and there it's there's quite an impressive amount of um conservation land in that area that you're talking about from barn island to out in little narragansett bay sandy point napa tree it's it's many organizations involved Mm -hmm. in conserving this land for its natural state Mm -hmm. It's pretty neat. There again today, you know, just a lot of, a yeah. lot of, right. a lot of folks in that area yep. helping, mm-hmm. doing great work. I mean, but and then to it. to combat the the you know what we've been talking about, where where people might say, well, then why do you have so many? I mean, they're each one of those has its own focus, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so it's not. I don't want people to get the wrong idea that mm-hmm. you know. Oh well, there's so many. <laughs> Let's just condense them all. No. But it's not. That's not the case. Obviously, yeah. it's and it's important for all of us to work together. And I think that's happening. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it would be. There's there's much more land than there is organizations. Yeah. Um, or or the responsibility of 
caring for that is placed on a fewer number of organizations. Mm -hmm. So I know the Westerly Land Trust has a much greater um, inventory, that's not the word I want to use, of land than the Yeah, exactly. But doesn't mean that we have, it's not directly correlates to more challenges, you know, right. it's, it's, uh, it's a big task that we're all taking on. And it's right. not just about conserving the land and, oh, the land's conserved and, uh, all right, we're done now and lock up and, right. and turn around. It, there's, it's okay. How do we continue to make sure that this land is a sustainable asset for the environment, for the people? Um, yeah. And, and, and then an example of stewardship that can be shared, right? Mm-hmm. So. Right. It's not just just having it mm-hmm. in the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to do something with it, too. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not like collecting monopoly. <laughs> exactly. No. It doesn't work that way. No. <laughs> but it's part of the goal. <laughs> the, um, so, so thinking about uh, Little Narragansett Bay, too, and we talked about everybody around the bay, but who, what about upstream? And so that's something that the land trust, Westerly Land Trust, is really excited about. We're going to um, kind of start our water quality monitoring program. Um, and we're going to be starting at Mass Talks at Brook with one site this year just to make sure that we can really, um, it's, vol- it's going to be volunteer driven. So make sure we can really set it up right uh, and then hopefully expand. But like, and figuring out what the how the water quality is coming out of Mastuxic Brook, a really small, tiny little watershed, uh, urbanized watershed in Westerly, that feeds into the lower Pocketuck that that affects the water quality in the bay. So it's not just like the people along the coast; it's mm-hmm. everybody upstream. Absolutely. And what's what's there's an old conservation saying. It's like we're all downstream or something like that. It's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll and we'll catch your water quality downstream yeah. because yeah. we do the mouth of the Pocketuck yeah. and yeah. out into the bay here. So yeah. we'll watershed watch for 14 years doing yeah. doing that work and we so, have some great volunteers mm-hmm. and, yeah. um, our naturalists who, who usually come from. Um, college program or out there yeah. testing it weekly mm-hmm. throughout the yeah. season so yeah so that's a super exciting program for you to get yeah. involved with and yeah contribute to this you know talking about uh organizations working together watershed watch is taking the data from all of us mm-hmm. and putting it into this system so we have these long-term records it's yeah. pretty pretty neat yeah. that they do that amazing that's great they that's also great. just did was it 20 2020 2019 the the Pocketuck River was just part of this national um, national historic river. No, it was a. I wish I could remember it. It doesn't matter. You don't the have to wild include and this. Scenic. Yes, yes, yeah. that was yeah. like yeah. that whole thing. The wild and scenic um, effort was mm-hmm. a long term effort. Finally, yeah. the Pocketuck River, up upper mm-hmm. and lower, were mm-hmm. part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a wonderful celebration for that designation we actually had there was a gentleman who kayaked from the top to the bottom and met us at napa tree and it was really this moment to be able to share that everything is downstream and that we're all part of the same uh, broader ecosystem uh, even though we may have our own individual focuses so Yeah, the wild and scenic designation was, I think, really huge for to our, unite our everybody community. along the river. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yep. and 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 help to protect obviously mm-hmm. the land around it, not just the river, but the land around exactly. it. Exactly, is important too. Yeah, which is great. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. I know. I think it, I think it's a sense of pride too for for people who maybe aren't also as aware of how unique the environment is here. Um, to get that national designation is like well. This is, there's something really special here, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's true. Um, you know, I've traveled a lot of places, and but still have always been drawn to South County, and, and the Pocketuck River was not, I never, I was a more of a coastal guy, you know, and, and but then really now as I, I zoomed in on the Pocketuck and understand how unique of a watershed it is, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I love it, you know, uh, and the opportunity to, you know, support fish habitats, support the wetlands, to, to uh, um, yeah, support the estuary. I mean, it's 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 a good opportunity. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it was really great having you guys, and thank thank you for having us here. They're, yeah, they're having us. <laughs> oh right, oh right. That's true. We're yeah. so lucky. Yeah. Maybe we should take this thank road, 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 on road on the show yeah. more. Show on the road. We should take this road on the show. <laughs> Let's take this road on the show more often. That's, that's what we'll call it. Cool. Road on the show. Yeah. Well, well thank you yeah. so oh, much. Thank you. Yeah. Um,
Yeah. Is there anything, um, like, you know, a little shout out to, where can people find out more about what you're doing at Napa Tree and, and with historic preservation and beyond here in Watch Hill? Well, check out our website, thewatchhillconservancy.org. Mm-hmm. You can always contact us at the office. I'm here. Um, I can connect you with who you need to be connected with, if that's Dan or maybe a science advisor or something like that. Um, I think the one thing that I really wanted to take an opportunity to share was that we have a lot of programming that's available to um, anyone. Um, Mm -hmm. On Monday nights in the summertime, we have a lecture series right here in this room called Land Fear Live. And we cover all sorts of topics, science, technology, uh, we might do a storm talk or sharks yeah. or whatever it may be. It's a, it's different every year, and it's so great. Uh, and also in the summertime, yeah, Dan's out uh, on Napa Tree. Yeah, we have uh, programs, uh, free hikes every Saturday morning to, okay. to learn a little bit more. We have incredible staff that leads those hikes. These are our naturalists, we call them, our Napa Tree naturalists. And they're just, um, I mean, me being here six months, I've learned so much from them <laughs> so uh, you get to spend an hour or two hours with them um, learning about the, the history the the coastal geology the importance of of the area um, and you don't have to sign up you just no, show up at the at the napa tree entrance and, and there will be someone there waiting on for saturday you saturday so morning saturday yeah. during, and when does that the, start then the summer it starts in july okay so nice. and uh, you can find more information at the website and yep. then also starting in july we have a, a free kids program as well that runs uh, Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Registration starts in June, and it's just for two hours in the morning, you know, helping our, our next generation scientists mm-hmm. and conservationists learn learn about uh, the area. So it's it's a lot of fun. Um, and same thing, the the two teachers we have that that run that program just they're just crazy smart and a lot of fun. So they're they're both <laughs> quite special. Yeah, yeah. it's good, so. it's it's quite impressive watching them. It's. It's really neat. So that that would be it. I just reach out to us, come get involved. Um, you know, we're happy to see new faces and yeah. and share what we do. Yeah, they could always just come down and enjoy an tree. Yeah, go for a walk and so great. You know, relax. And One of the best sunsets around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, I like cool. when horseshoe crabs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we didn't even get to talk about that. I know. Next podcast. Yeah, I next podcast. There, there will be more. We might take this out, this show on the road even more and be on Napa Tree next time. Yeah, exactly. That'd be great. No uh, promises. Well, if, if the wind calms down. <laughs> All right. Cool. Thanks. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening to this month's episode. Uh, be sure to go online also and check out the uh, Watch Hill Conservancy's annual State of Napa Tree report. Uh, an amazing synthesis of all the cool work that's going on uh, out on Napa Tree Conservation Area. There's a lot of dynamic stuff going on in that system. So um, be sure to check out that document on their website. And uh, we hope you'll tune into our Voice of the Land podcast next month. All right. See ya.